0: Would stand with me that we can read God's word together. We're in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verses 14 through 25. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Sayir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discord and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Ashur takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way.
1: You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this privilege to gather with your people this morning. And God, we just pray continually that you do what we can't do. We pray that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see you clearly God, we pray that you'd move by your spirit and remind us of your worth, amount, remind us of your glory, remind us of your value, that you would remind us, especially in this Christmas season, that you are our greatest treasure and our only hope. And so I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you be at work. I pray that you'd be at work saving the lost. I pray that you'd be at work drawing all of us closer to you. And God, reminding us that you are truly king. Lord God, if there's anything in our lives or our hearts that we're withholding from you, Lord, any area that we're trying to protect, Lord God, I pray that we would just surrender this morning. Surrender to your goodness, surrender to your glory, surrender to your power and to your love. And God, that you would have uh, your work today. God, that's what we're asking. Lord, I pray for your help as I preach. God, give me your aid and Lord, we trust that your Your word will never return void. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, I'm just going to take a sip of water. Hold on. Well, if you're with us new this morning, we're in a Advent series that is a Christmas series called Epic and it's Christmas and Salvation History. So Pastor Eric last week started us out with Christmas in what book of the Bible? Genesis, that's right. And we looked at Genesis 3.15 and the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and we celebrated Christ's coming in that. This morning we'll be in Numbers 24, verses 14 through 25 that Megan just read, and we're looking at salvation Uh, You can go back to the first slide. We're looking at salvation history uh, in the book of Numbers. And you might be thinking, well, how in the world are we going to find it in the book of Numbers in Balaam's oracle? But this might be new to you. But the Bible isn't just a book of disconnected stories, okay? It's one divinely written book telling a single story. And actually, the single story begins in Genesis And it winds its way on to the book of Revelation, to the end of the book, right? And this single greatest story ever told is a love story, actually. You guys, I know some of you like rom-coms. No, 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 no. But this love story is about a God, the one true God who would do the impossible to rescue and redeem his people for himself for an eternity. And that's what the whole book of the Bible is about. And as the Jesus Storybook Bible goes, you guys know that resource. It's a ch- children's devotional. I love it. The tagline usually says something like, every book of the Bible whispers his name, Jesus. As the Jesus Storybook Bible put it, <clears throat> at the center of this redemptive story, this greatest story ever told, this amazing drama, at the center of the story is a baby. <clears throat> and that baby's name is Who? Jesus. But let's not get too much ahead of ourselves, okay? This morning, as we begin, we're going to be in numbers. But before we get there, sorry, y'all can pray for my throat. I don't know what's going on. I wanted to show you a, a resource that I really love. It's called Full Moon Rising. We've been reading this with our kids since very, very early on. Love the illustrations in it. Love the story in it. But basically, the full moon rising is about how the moon wants to still the sun's glory. That's what the whole book is about. And when it says the full moon rising, it doesn't mean F-U-L-L. It means F-O-O-L, the full, the unwise moon, right? And the story, the children's book, is about a crime of cosmic proportions because the moon is blinded by his pride. And throughout the resource, He doesn't see, he fails to see that the true source of of his ability and his uh, ability to to do things actually is light provided by the sun. And yet the entire book, he's boasting in himself, look what I can do. Look what I can accomplish. Look what I've done. I'm going to read you the end of the book. Sorry for the spoiler if you've never read this resource before. I encourage you to buy it. But I'm going to read you the end of the lines. It says, The moon comes to a time of repentance, okay? And he's crying. You guys see that? It might be too small for you to see. But here's what the lion says as he comes to the end of the book, time of repentance. He realizes that all the strength and the ability that he had to reflect light actually came from the sun. And he says this, he saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done. For he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun, So now each night, a new delight is what he loves the most, reflecting light with all his might. The sun is now his boast. Isn't that beautiful? That's what our hope is, that Christ has done that work in us, and now our boast is not in ourselves, it's in the sun, S U O S O N, Jesus Christ. And this morning, When we look at the story of Balaam, you'll see a blindness in Balaam that maybe you say, hey, look, that looks kind of familiar. Like I've seen that type of blindness to God's greatness in my life before. My hope is that as we preach through this text, that God would soften our hearts like he did the son and our boast, our hope, our desires would ultimately be seen and found in Jesus. So the title of my sermon is Seeing Clearly at Christmas, and Lord knows we need that. Seeing clearly at Christmas, our deliverer is here. So, as we open up the book of, the num- of Numbers, the question is, where are we in the biblical storyline? So, making it really, really easy when we pick up in uh, uh, Numbers 24, we are beyond creation, the creation of the world. We're beyond the Exodus where uh, God delivered his people from slavery. We're beyond Sinai when God gave his people the law. Beyond the tabernacle, we're on our way. The people of God are on their way to where? You guys know where it is? Promised land or Canaan land. And we're stuck right in the wilderness. And you say, well, that's where I am this morning. Well, that's where we are this morning. We're on a journey, right, to the, to the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. And here the people of God are stuck in the wilderness. And at this point in the story, this Moses-led Israel is facing serious opposition from their enemies. God's future home is near. They're on the cusp, they're on the brink of getting into the promised land, but there's many other nations, their neighbors, who don't want Israel there, okay? They don't want it. So in Numbers 22, one such enemy is Balak the king. He's the king of Moab. So y'all just tuck that away. He's the king. He's an earthly king of Moab, Moabites, right? And He has basically seen Israel up until that point, with God's help, come out of Israel and destroy every single one of their foes on the way, systematically working through that towards the promised land, and he is scared out of his mind. He's terrified, the text shows us. So the leaders of Moab, the Moabites, like King Balak, has a plan. They're basically going to hire an internationally famous pagan sorcerer named Balaam to come and curse Israel so that they can defeat them. So that's the plan. That's the game plan. Plan, Pay this guy enough money. We've heard he's really good at cursing people. And when he curses people, they actually get cursed and they lose. So they believe all the power lies in Balaam's words and Balaam's promises, and their hope is in Balaam. So King Balak sends messengers to invite Balaam to Moab to curse Israel, and God tells uh, Balaam to send them home, okay? He's like, don't go with them, uh, send them home. And Balaam does what God says, he sends them home. But he really doesn't want to do that. You see that throughout the story. God's actually forcing him, constraining him to do the right thing along the way. And so Balak doesn't like this, so he sends the messengers back. And this time, he sends them with a little bit more fanfare. He sends them with more important, prestigious people. They basically drive up in a limousine with the red carpet, and Balaam's getting enticed. He's like, this looks pretty, pretty cool. And so he invites Balak the king through his messengers, invites Balak a second, uh, Balaam a second time to come back to Moab to curse the people of Israel. And this is what Balaam does. He says, you guys stick around. You stay the night. And what he's hoping is that the God of the Bible, the one true God, is going to change his mind and then ka-ching, he gets the money for cursing uh, the people of God. But what Balaam finds out is that the God of the Bible never changes. What Balaam finds out is the God of the Bible is totally tenacious about blessing his people. And what comes next in the story is that God tells him he can go to Moab, but he doesn't do it because he wants him to, or he's going to change his mind. He does it because he wants to teach Balaam a lesson about Balaam's truest need, because remember, Balaam can't see, like the full moon in the book, and he wants to teach him about his extravagant mercy. So God allows Balaam to go, and on the way, Balaam's riding a donkey. You remember that story? And this is like pre-Shrek, okay? This was like the Bible, the talking donkey was the Bible's idea, right? So pre-Shrek. And what's happening is Balaam's riding that donkey along the road to go to Moab, and he can't see the angel of the Lord. He can't see God's representative on the road, but he's a famous seer. Like, that's his job, you know? It'd be like you're, you're a plumber, but you can't fix pipes, and that's what's going on right here. And the donkey wants to ride away from the angel of the Lord because the angel of the Lord's got a sword. And he knows, he sees what Balaam doesn't see and he knows that they're gonna get destroyed. So he keeps on trying to veer off to the side, veer off the side. Eventually he crushes Balaam's foot against the wall and Balaam's like, what's wrong with this Toyota Corolla? Why isn't it doing what I told it to do? Like he doesn't get it, right? And three times he beats the donkey until God spiritually opens Balaam's eyes on that road And he sees what the donkey's always seen. He sees the angel of the Lord. So after he sees that he was in danger this whole time, he's like, hey, I now love my donkey, (laughs) right? And he goes on his way to Moab. But as he goes, Balaam uh, arrives there and he starts talking to Balak the king. And Balak the king starts taking him around to different mountains, three different mountains, to show him the people of Israel off in the distance. And he's just showing them kind of pieces of... The people like he can't sh- he's not showing them all at once at that point he's showing them encamped on the ground nearby and it's as if balak the king thinks this that the god of the bible is a regional deity like he's just localized right that he's not the god of heaven and earth so the idea in the text as it unfolds is that if king balak gets balaam in just the right spot on just the right top of the mountain, that maybe that's where Baal, the false god, is worshipped. Then Baal will get the upper hand over the God of the Bible, and Balak will get the results that he wants, and Israel will get cursed, right? And even Balaam believes this kind of thing, you see, because every time he goes to a different mountain, he's like, let's build seven different altars, and let's sacrifice all these animals. And the idea, it seems, is you can manipulate the God of the Bible, You can do just the right thing, say this the right thing, and you can kind of control God to get the outcome you desire. None of us are like that, are we? We don't believe that. And yet three times this corrupt prophet, Balaam, is enabled to only speak and do what God commands. Three times Balak, on top of those mountains as he moves Balaam around, is holding out for the curse on his enemies the people of Israel but three times Balaam is forced by God to speak a blessing over the people of Israel and that's actually very comforting because one thing this reminded me of is that Satan wants to curse God's people he's tried since the gardens and this is 315 there's so many enemies to God's people we even speak false things over ourselves as believers but nothing actually is ever going to be able to reverse the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Nothing will, and no one else will. So finally, at the end of the story, there is a third oracle that King Balaam hears, sorry, King Balak hears from Balaam. And as he delivers it, Balaam and Balak finally kind of agree and realize that God's not gonna change his mind. So they're like, we're fed up, we're going home. And Balaam's like, I'm going back to my place. And Balak's like already in Moab, so he's there. But here's the thing that's interesting. God's not done talking. (laughs) Isn't that funny? You're like talking to somebody, you're like, I'm done, and you hang up, and they're like, I'm still on the phone. I'm still saying something, right? And God brings in Numbers 24, a fourth and final oracle through Balaam to Balak. And here's my first point, seeing the supremacy of the one true God, seeing the supremacy of the one true God. We see that in verses 15 through 16. So this oracle, the final oracle opens up like this, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are, you tell me what it says, opened, right? And then a couple verses later, it says it again, Balaam's eyes are open. So again, why that description? Why did God say it that way through Balaam? Why did he choose to describe Balaam as a a prophet whose eyes are open at that point? Well, again, here's the irony from the story. Throughout the story, Balaam's characterized as a seer who can't actually see, right? The donkey thing was God's attempt to wake Balaam up. It was actually a warning. It was to be a humbling thing for Balaam. Here's what Balaam was supposed to see. Balaam, the donkey sees and understands more of me than you do. That was the lesson. The donkey understands God enough to know that who God is should actually affect the way he lives, right? The donkey understood that. What do I mean by that? The donkey actually changed his direction on the road, even though his human master disapproved, right? The donkey even stopped dead in his tracks, and he laid down in the road, and he's like, I'm not walking towards the angel of the Lord. He surrendered at the sight of God, regardless of what it would cost him. And at that point, it was costing him a beating from Balaam. Balaam, on the other hand, speaks God's word over and over and over again throughout the story, but is blind to the true weight and the true majesty and the true worthiness of God. Like I feel that at Christmas time so many times, right? We're getting caught up in all the Christmas trees and the lights, and those are not necessarily bad things, but we're missing the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, right? And at this point, Balaam is used by God to deliver divine truth, but he doesn't trust the content or actually trust the God who's speaking that through him. Balaam and Balak are both hearing truth, the truth of who God is over and over again, but they're still actually throughout the story focused on advancing their own little kingdoms down to the very end. What am I saying? Neither of them are seeing the supremacy and the greatness of God in their lives. And here in verse 16, Balaam is seeing and speaking the unadulterated, uncontaminated truth about who God is. And just look at these verses really quickly, verse 15, I think, to 16. You'll see three titles that God speaks through Balaam about himself. You see this first one, he refers to himself as God, which is actually Yahweh in the Hebrew. He, secondly, he says he's the Most High. Do y'all see that in the verses in the text? And then third, he calls what does God call himself through Balaam? He calls himself the All mighty, right? Just a few things. God is showing Balaam his supremacy when he says he's God. You remember what Yahweh means in the Hebrew? God is the self-existent one. He is the unchanging one. One of the first times that that name is mentioned in the Bible is in uh, Genesis. Uh, sorry, in Exodus when God reveals himself to Moses out of the what? you remember? Burning bush. What's the interesting thing about the bush? What happens when it burns? It doesn't be consumed. It's not burned up, right? And in that, God is saying, I never change. I'm faithful to the end. I don't change. I've decided not to curse my people. I'm not going to. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Kids, don't really answer this question out loud. But how many of you have had your parents tell you something? Like, hey, we're going to go over to grandma uh, and granddad's, or we're going to go to the store, and they didn't end up doing what they said they were. Anybody? Yeah, let's, let's not say it. But what in that point, God is saying, I'm not like man. They lie intentionally or unintentionally. But what I say, and I promise, it always comes true. Second, God shows in that text that he's the most high God. One of the first times that that phrase or title for God was mentioned was in the story of a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar, right? And in that story, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to rule and to reign Babylon and accomplish so many things. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar like the full moon? He said, oh, that was me. I accomplished these things. But God humbled Nebuchadnezzar till he was eating grass like an animal in a field, until Neb would see this, Neb. Nebuchadnezzar would see this. The God of the Bible is the one true God. He is the highest. No one can place themselves above his authority. All must bow low to His authority. Third, we see God's supremacy in the fact that He calls himself the Almighty. And one of the first times you see that phrase or title in the, in the Old Testament is in the story of Abram and Sarai, right? Before they had the name change, God promised Abram and Sarai that they would, that he would bless them and make them a great nation like as many stars are in the heavens, right? That many children were coming out of the people of Israel and that he would ultimately use them to bless the world ultimately through the de- their descendant, who is who? Jesus, right? And yet they had this little, little problem, okay? They are old, okay? And I don't mean 60, okay? I mean like he's 100, she's 90, and you're not supposed to be able to have kids then. But God keeps on saying, hey, you'll have some kids, all right? Now, this is not a word to anybody this morning. I'm just saying this is the Bible story, right? All right? So you're going to have some kids, and it's coming, and this is what happens. They say, hey, look, we're getting older and older, and we don't think the promise is going to happen. It's not going to be fulfilled. And Abram Abraham thinks, I'm going to have to take this into my own hands. I'm going to have to have a child through my, maid, my wife's maidservant, Hagar, which he does, Ishmael, right? And the point along the way is you don't really believe that the Almighty is the Almighty if you don't believe that the one created man out of dust can actually use an old person to have a baby, right? Though ultimately, we'll, the, Jesus will come through, right? So here's the deal. As the story unfolds, you've got these two guys, Balaam and Balak, and they're trying to control and manipulate who? The Almighty, right? They're thinking, hey, look, we can control him. We can manipulate him. And and now God's speaking through Balaam and saying, look at my supremacy. Like, I'm the Almighty. You can't control me, right? You've got people Uh, In this book, that are seeing God incorrectly. They're saying, hey, look, you know, God's promised this. Balaam and Balak are saying this, but they're like, maybe he'll change his mind, just like we change our minds. And God is saying, if I promise something, it's going to happen. I promised my people that I would bless them, not curse them. I promised them ultimately through the descendant of Abraham's seed. We know that to be Jesus from Galatians 3.16, that I will bless the world with salvation, not by their works, but through faith in Christ. And here's the thing that we see in the opening. Because he is the Almighty, because he is the Most High, because he is Yahweh, the Unchanging One, nobody's going to stop God from doing what he's promised. Not a corrupt prophet not a misfit Moabite king, and not even his own felled people. Isn't that a good promise? I'm going to bless my people. None of these guys' characters in the main story are going to mess this thing up, and ultimately not even my own people. You know what comes right after all of this in Numbers 24? Like all this promises through Balaam and the warring with Balak. The very next chapter, the very next verse, it rolls over in 25.1. You've got the people of God having seen God deliver in so many different ways through all these foreign armies and nationalities. In verse 1 of chapter 25, the people of Israel decide that it's a good idea to worship the gods of Moab and be promiscuous with the wives of, the, of Moab. They think that's a good idea. And in this context, you've got a God who's promising good for his people, and ultimately he's saying not even his, my own people are going to destroy The good that I have purposed for them. That's a really amazing God. Second point, seeing the identity of the coming Christ, verse 17, seeing the identity of the coming Christ. So at the height of Balaam's vision of God, he sees this. Look at it in the verse, because I want you to see it, verse 17. He says, Balaam's prophesying of the future, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Who does Balaam see in the vision? You guys answer the question. Who's Balaam seeing the vision? You tell me. Jesus. Who said that? That was great. Yeah. Well, the closest antecedent, did I lose anybody? (laughs) The closest antecedent tells us Balaam is still seeing God. He's seeing the Almighty. He's seeing the Most High. He's seeing Yahweh himself, but he sees him in the future. Verse 17, right? Not now. Not near. Verse 14, but in the latter days. Verse 17, and what is unique about the vision of God that Balaam sees? God is coming out of Jacob, the text says, or rising out of Israel. That is, (laughs) in the future, God's gonna be taking on human flesh, Israelite flesh, as the God-man, right? God who's so vast that he cannot be contained by the universe even itself, God, who's so vast that he can't be contained by a house that people might build for him, is going to limit himself in the future to a womb. Now, that is an itty bitty dwelling place, right? He's going to limit himself to a zip code or a nationality or a human body. This is the glory of the incarnation. This is the glory of what we refer to as Christmas. And what does Balaam tell us about the coming God-man? He says these three things basically. He says he's starlike, he's scepter wielding, and he's a skull crusher. To pick up on what Eric said last week the baby skull crusher, right? That's what Eric referred to. <laughs> he's starlike. Well, what does that mean? What does the coming one starlike mean? Well, stars were most likely symbols of kingship in the ancient world. So if you look at like Isaiah 14, the Babylonian king there, who may, it may be a reference to Satan, is referred to as the day star. But stars are also just bright, right? They're just bright. I love looking at the stars on our back porch when we, when we come home at night from being out. Like, we're getting on our back porch. We're trying to rummage through the keys to get into the back, the back door. And we often turn and we look up. And there, there's not a lot of light over there where we are. And we could see just the stars shining so brightly. And they are glorious in the sky, majestic even. And what they're doing at that point is they're chasing away the darkness, right? And that's kind of the point right here. I think this is why the coming one Jesus is referred to as the light of the world in Matthew 5 and as the bright and morning star in Revelation 22:16. I mean, you think that like the Griswold Christmas tree and house is bright, right? How much brighter and more glorious is Jesus? And he would be the embodiment of truth and sinlessness. But when received, he would bring spiritual sight. And Jesus would bring spiritual transformation. You know that great light we sang about when we sang that second song? I love Isaiah's great light. That's what Isaiah 9 prophesied of Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them the light has shone, the light of Christ. And this light is actually spiritually life-giving. But the coming one wouldn't just be star-like. He would be scepter-wielding or scepter-using. He would carry the ruler's staff. He would be a king. Now, Jacob had already promised uh, of Jesus in G- uh, Genesis forty-nine, ten, when he said this prophecy, "'The shep- scepter shall not depart from Judah,' nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So these prophecies and promises were not less than the promise of a Davidic dynasty, dynasty, but because King David would actually come and his rule and his accomplishments would be great. But this text, Genesis 49, and the one that we're in is actually a promise of the greater David, right? Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and by contrast to David, who was a failure in many ways, Jesus would be perfectly righteous, perfectly communicating God's word to the people, perfectly leading, perfectly protecting, and ultimately perfectly sacrificing himself as he died on the cross to, to deliver his people from sin and death. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he calls for everyone to give up their allegiances to any other kingdom, including their own little kingdoms, and repent and follow King Jesus. And see, that's the part of the tension that we feel in Numbers 24. And that's actually a part of the tension we feel in our own lives. Jesus is like, if you're going to be with me, you can't live for your own little kingdom, right? Because it's not about you. You're not the almighty. You're weak. I'm the almighty. You're not the most high. You're actually really low. (laughs) You're not the self-existent one. I made you. You're not the unchanging one. We change and we die. And he's saying in this text, that's part of the tension. Balaam wants to serve money and serve the glory that that man can give him rather than the glory that he can get from God. And that's the only reason why he continues to do what he does about wanting to pursue blessing, uh, cursing Israel, is because that's what his desire is. And similarly with Balak, king of the Moabites, he's wanting his way. He wants Israel to be cursed. He doesn't actually care what God wants. He and Balaam should actually lay down their desires and swear allegiance to the one true God, but they don't. They should have, a, have had a Ruth moment. You guys remember reading through Ruth? What would that Ruth moment be? Your God is my God. Wouldn't that be so cool if Balaam and Balak were sitting up on the mountains and, and they were looking at Israel and all of a sudden Balak and Balaam were like, we're fools. We've been trying to get all the glory for ourselves. We've been chasing after money. Our allegiance is not the one true God. Clearly, he's bigger than us. Clearly, he's greater. Clearly, he does everything he promised. We submit and have a Ruth moment, but they don't. The text actually says in verse 25, look at it if you see the end of it. It says they both end up going back to their own place and returning to their own way. And you're like, well, I believe that literally happened. I think that's what they did. But I also think that's a perfect word picture of their refusal to repent and believe in the one true God and realign their lives with what he desires. I mean, even in the next chapter, it opens with Balaam advising Balak to take the backdoor approach on Israel's downfall by tempting Israel into idolatry through sexual temptation through the women of Moab. But here's the thing, the star the scepter, and the skull crusher, he will prevail. He will ultimately prevail. Third and final point, seeing the enemies of God's people defeated. You'll see that in verse 17 through 24. The text says, it or the star or the scepter shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. See, Balaam was Israel cursed, and in the process, he ends up getting Moab cursed. Now, Moab would actually be destroyed by King David about 300 years later from this point where Balaam's prophesying, but I think the text is pointing us to far greater deliverance further in the future that comes through Jesus Christ, right? It says the king shall crush the forehead of Moab. Does that ring a bell to anybody, that language? Crush the forehead. What does that sound like? Anybody know? Genesis 3.15, it sounds like the sermon from last week, right? When God gave the promise that the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent, yes, Jesus would deliver the death blow on Satan at the cross, but this death blow would also ensure the defeat of every one of Satan's seeds, right? Every one of Satan's children are like, I'm glad I'm not a child of Satan. Well, in Genesis 8.44, we're reminded that all are born as enemies of God. That's how we come out, Right? We don't come out good. We come out born enemies of God. We come out sons and daughters of Satan. We actually need Jesus by his grace to save us and bring us out of that kingdom and put us into his kingdom. We need him to pull us out of being enemies to him and save us and make us children of his. And what we see in in John's gospel and elsewhere is that we need to become subjects of the new king by submitting to his grace and receiving his rule over our lives. And here, the enemies of the Messiah will have it really, really bad if they remain enemies. The text shows us it will be total defeat in verses 17 through 19. So Moab, Sheth, Edom, Seir, they're all enemies of Israel at this point. And the text shows us that they won't just be defeated, like taken away as captives to live another day. But look at the text it says Moab's head will be crushed. That is, no more life. Sheth's sons will be broken down. That's no more lineage. Edom will be dispossessed, that's no more land, so shortly in time, these actual enemies will be defeated. They won't just be defeated, they'll actually cease to exist. They won't exist anymore. Numbers is just preparing us for the complete defeat that comes to anyone who will reject Christ and by the extension reject God's people. And here's the thing about this defeat, it doesn't just transfer to Israel's unbelieving neighbors in the book of Na- uh, Numbers, it also extends to the unbelieving nations mentioned in uh, Numbers 24, 20, 20 through 24, Amalek, Canaanite, Cain, Asher, and Eber. And this is the crazy thing. I think all these people who will ultimately de- be defeated, they didn't think they actually would be defeated. They're like, there's no way, right? They're like, pretty powerful and pretty cocky, it seems, as the text unfolds. And Balaam's prophecy points out that Amalek, verse 20, was the first among the nations. Most likely, they're the oldest. Can they be defeated? I mean, they've got some tenure here. They've been around for a long time. Can they be defeated? What's the answer? Yeah, they will be. And I think this passage is telling us not to put our trust in our status, or our wanting to be well-received or well-liked by other people or or anything like that, or putting our trust in being significant in the world's eyes. But the text is calling us to turn from putting our trust there and putting our trust in the divine King, Jesus, who is coming. The Canaanites in verse 21, similarly, they have their home on a high, fortified, rocky mountain. The question is, can they be defeated? They're they're. Kind of protected by all that rock high up and far off. Can they be defeated? The answer in the text is yes. They're going to be burned out of their fortified eagle's nest and carried away in captivity by Asher and Eber. And I think, again, the reminder in this text, what you feel overall in the story of Balaam, is we've got to stop trusting in our own defenses. We've got to stop trusting the things that we think will actually protect us, whether they be good things like vitamins or you know security systems or cameras or whatever it might be, or a specific leader, we got to stop trusting in our pseudo-saviors and turn again to the coming one, who we know as Jesus Christ, right? And you say, at this point in the story, wow, nobody's going to be able to stop Asher and Eber. I mean, they were strong enough to defeat the Kenites who were up in the Rocky Mountain nest. But the text says here that Asher and Eber will be destroyed by the ships of Kittim too. Look at verse 23 and 24. And I think the reminder is this, we can't continue to put our confidence in what we can do. They would have thought, hey, we defeated them up in the rocky nest, we can defeat anybody. But the text shows that someone else comes and defeats them. It's like a domino effect, right? What's the reminder? We don't trust in our yesterday victories. We don't trust in our past accomplishments. We don't even trust in our personal strengths. That's what the enemies of God do. And that's the tendency of God's people to, to start trusting like that as well. We need to turn from trusting in those things and trust by faith in Christ. And here's the thing. The only reason why the people of God do val- valiantly in verse 18, is funny, all their enemies are perishing, and it says right in the middle of there, Israel's doing valiantly. You know the only reason why Israel's doing valiantly? Because God's doing the delivering, Right? I was preparing for this sermon and I had a nightmare. And the nightmare was this. I was driving in the car and I drove my car off the road and into somebody's pool. Now, I don't know how I did that. (laughs) But it sank to the bottom. I was in danger of drowning. I got out and then the police came and they pulled my car out by some massive chain on the back of a tow truck. I don't know, (laughs) that's what happened. And I was like, everybody's trying to interpret my dream. I see what you're doing right now. (laughs) But I woke up, and I don't know why, all of a sudden this text was in my brain. And I was like, one of the things that came to my mind was, oh, the police got me out. I didn't get myself out. (laughs) That was the thought. I couldn't get that big car out of the swimming pool, right? I couldn't do it on my own. And actually, that is the point of, I think, this text. The star scepter crushes the head of Moab. Israel doesn't crush the head of Moab. That's not what the text says. One from Jacob, the Messiah, will exercise dominion and destroy the enemy survivors, verse 19. Jacob doesn't do that. It will be said on that day, alas, who shall live when God does this? <laughs> any victory that we have, I'm talking about any victory, any deliverance ultimately comes from our, our victor, our savior, our king, Jesus. He's the one who accomplished uh, he, he's the one who overcame sin and death itself, right? And so I think it's dangerous for the people of God to put their trust in themselves to deliver. Even this, the reason why we are the people of God who have all these promised blessings that are coming in Christ and have come in Christ, and even the future blessings we have, is not because we're good enough. It's not because we did did enough right or, or not done enough wrong. I love the commentary on this text from Deuteronomy 23.5, and this is what it says. But the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam. He turned the intended curse into a blessing because the Lord God loves you. That was the reason why God did that. It wasn't because, you know, Israel didn't ever act like an enemy to God because they did like we do many times, but it was just because the God and his mercy... Chose to bless his people, and as we conclude, here's the irony of Christmas. This is the irony of Christmas. When Jesus came, he wasn't glorious and bright like a star, like you might think. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that there was nothing beautiful or majestic in his appearance that we'd be attracted to him. Like you wouldn't walk on the side of the road and be like, "Man, that Jesus, he's really handsome." No, you would have walked by him and not have thought another thing. Yet when the baby was born in the womb, like Eric said, when the baby was born in the manger, God came low, right? It was like a shooting star came down, right? The radiance of God's glory, like Hebrews says, was in human flesh as God himself came down and the star we even know this, the star that, that was in the sky led the wise man over to Jesus. It wasn't what you expected, right? You're like, the star is coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then all of his glory was not revealed immediately to other people. Second, when Jesus came, the irony of Christmas is that he didn't use the ruler's staff. This text is like, this ruler, this victor, he's going to destroy all God's enemies. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he's humble and lowly and he's gentle and he doesn't come with weaponized horses or forcing his kingdom. He comes riding humble on a donkey. He comes serving his enemies. What? Teaching, healing sinful people like you and me. And he lays down his ruler's staff at that point and he picks up the servant's washbowl and towel and washes people's feet. The irony of the God-man, the God made low. And then finally, when Jesus came, he didn't come crushing the skulls of his enemies. He loved his enemies. He prayed for them, he blessed them, he served them, he called them to himself. Can you imagine that? Calling the nations to himself to find forgiveness of sins and to find new life from his life-giving power. He was doing that, right? He was raising up his enemies. He was saving his enemies. He was inviting his enemies to feast with him. He was offering them new life. He was dying to reconcile his enemies to himself. And that could have been the hope for Balaam and Balak. Just believe. And if you just believe, God would save and graft you in to his people and he would do a great work to bring you into his family, so that you could live for his glory and not for your little kingdom of self. This is a beautiful thing. Now, that final judgment on God's enemies is coming at his second coming, but now the message of Christmas is today is the day of salvation. Today is the opportunity for grace. Today is your opportunity to hear the good news, repent and believe. Today is an opportunity for all people, including God's people, to let go of idols and let go of their kingdoms and say, Jesus, you are the almighty. Jesus, you are the most high. Jesus, you are the unchanging one who's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and I submit my life to you, and I want to give you my idols. Like, I want to trust you with the things that I'm hanging on to this Christmas, like presents and good health and job opportunities and all this stuff, and I want to lay them at your feet. I want to trust you for true deliverance, the most important deliverance. Doesn't that make you want to take the the good news of the gospel to the nations? (laughs) I mean, we have the truth. We have the hope. We have the peace. So at Christmas, our prayer as we close and we sing some songs is that we would see clearly at Christmas. Like we don't want to be the moon And the full moon rises at the beginning, like we don't want to be that guy crooning over how awesome we are and how great and how high we actually want to see. Unlike Balaam saw, sometimes we as God's people fail to see as well. We want to see God's glory for all it it is, how great he is and how small he is and how that's a good gift to us because he loves us and he's come to redeem us. We want to see the Christ correctly, right? He is the glorious one. He is the ruler. He is the skull crusher. He's come to redeem and save us. Our deliverer is here and let's live for him. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for the upside down nature of Christmas that you, the glorious holy one, would come down to see us, to live among us, to understand what it's like to be human, and Lord, then you would come to redeem us. Lord, we are baffled that you would limit yourself to a tiny little baby's body so that you could ultimately not get praise on the earth at that point, but so that you could die to redeem us. Lord, we're mindful that and it blows us away that you would love us, even like Israel, how so many times we fail you, we run into idolatry, we don't live like you're the king of our lives and like you're the lover of our souls. And we pursue those things that even Israel did after you redeemed us out of so much pain and brokenness and sin and death. And we just marvel at your love, that steadfast love. And we pray that we'd celebrate it this Christmas and all through this season, Lord. God, Speak your will and your way to us at this time. God, be glorified as we sing in Christ's name. Amen.